You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do praise you and thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus. And we thank you that all of Scripture, from beginning to end, bears witness and points to him. So we pray now that you would come, Holy Spirit, come in this reading and preaching of your word. May you illumine our hearts by the same spirit that you illumined this word to be written, that we might respond to your word with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning again, church family. I'm Corey. I'm the senior pastor here at Third, and I want to welcome you, uh, especially if you're visiting today. And if you are visiting, what we've been doing this summer is we've been in this sermon series called Pointing to the Promise. Um, You might, maybe you've read the Old Testament before. The Old Testament can be a pretty confusing book, a violent book, a confounding book at times. And what we've been trying to do is, is look at the ways that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, was proclaimed far in advance, even in the Old Testament, And it wasn't just proclaimed through explicit messianic prophecies about Jesus, but actually it was proclaimed through the storyline of the Bible itself. And that all of these wonderful stories, many of which we've heard in Sunday school growing up, um, are actually like uh, uh, trail markers, trail markers that are pointing to the summit, pointing to the bigger story of the Bible, which is the good news about Jesus and what he has done to redeem us and to redeem the world. So uh, we've actually, if you've been here this summer, you'll, you might remember this, that we've actually marched through the whole Old Testament, um, starting in Genesis with um, the story about Abraham and God's promise of blessing to Abraham. And then we looked at how God's people did multiply and ultimately uh, had to come to live in Egypt and how God used Moses to bring them out of Egypt and how they wandered in the desert and how ultimately they came into the promised land and then how they became a nation that was ruled by kings. And how ultimately, because of rebellion, they were taken into captivity and so we've gone over that entire spectrum this, this summer, and today we come to the last uh, sermon in this series, and this is about the story of Esther um, in the Old Testament. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to do something a little different today, that instead of doing a scripture reading, I'm actually going to do the scripture reading like within the, the storyline itself. Um, and I want to introduce you to these characters. First of all, uh, we have Queen Esther. Let's, let's give a little clap for, for Esther. She's the... She's the heroine of the story. Um, Esther is, at this point, you know, many Jews had returned to Jerusalem, but there were still many, many of the Jewish community were still living um, in exile in the foreign territories in the ancient world. And so many of them, including Esther at the time, was living in Persia, specifically in the capital city of Susa. Okay, another character in this story is Esther's cousin, Mordecai. Let's give a little snap. Let's go snap for Mordecai. Yeah, he's, the, he's sort of the second hero in our story. Um, and Mordecai is not only Esther's cousin, but he also essentially, because she's an orphan, um, has become her foster dad. Okay, so the two of them as Jewish people are living in exile in the capital city of Susa. And the king of Persia at the time was named Xerxes. Now, Xerxes uh, was kind of a hot-tempered king. And one night he had a crazy party. And Xerxes got pretty drunk. And he sends a message to his queen, her name is Vashti, to come and do a little dance for him and his friends. And Vashti says, uh-uh, I am not coming to do a little dance for you and your friends. And this, 
sends the king into such a rage that he decides to divorce Vashti and banish her forever from his presence. Well, a couple weeks later, he's like, oh, shoot, now I don't have a queen. And he's getting a little lonely, and he doesn't know what to do. And so his attendants say to him, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you have a beauty pageant and bring in all the young virgins of the land, and then you can just choose the one that you want to be your queen, Yeah, right? Well, anyway, so Esther, she just happened to be the age uh, that among the women that they were calling in, and so they called in Esther. Um, And Mordecai did say to her just before she went into this contest that whatever you do, do not reveal your cultural identity. Do not reveal that you were Jewish. Because if you do, big trouble could happen. So Esther goes in, and she and the other young women go through an entire year of beauty treatments, 12 months of beauty treatments. And then the time comes for the pageant, and so they each come in, each of the women come in one by one to present themselves to the king. Well, just so happened that Esther was extremely beautiful, and the cosmetologist had taken a special interest in her. And so it just so happened that when it came Esther's turn to come in to see the king, he was immediately ravished by her, and he instantly made her queen. So suddenly, this young orphan Jewish girl becomes the most powerful woman in the Persian empire. Now, meanwhile, while this was happening, Mordecai, her cousin, used to hang out by the king's gate. And one day as he was chilling by the gate, it just so happened that there were two guards who he overheard whispering about an assassination plot to kill the king. Mordecai says, "Uh uh-oh. So he sends a message to Esther, who is now queen. Hey, these two guards are plotting to kill the king. She then turns this information over to the king's guard. They arrest the two guards, and have them executed. I want you to remember that because they wrote this down in the book of memorable deeds, okay? Now, there's a third character in this story, and his name is Haman. I want everybody to go, dun-dun-dun. Okay, Haman is uh, second in command of the king. He's super important, and he thought he was something else. He just always strutted around thinking about how super special important he was. And in fact, he was so, he had such an ego that he expected as he was walking around the streets of Susa that every time he passed by a commoner, he expected that they would all bow down to him because he's so super special, important. Well, as he passed by Mordecai, who was always chilling at the gate, Mordecai would never pass, never never bow down to him. And this enraged Haman. It made him so angry that he wanted to kill this man. And actually, chapter three, verse six says, having learned who Mordecai's people were, He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman put his cunning to work. He went in to the king and he said, hey king, there's a group of people living in your land who are a bunch of scoundrels and they do not obey your laws. And if I were you, I would issue a decree that all of these people should be killed. And I am so serious about this that I will put down a hundred grand of my own cash to ensure that this is done. King says, Okay, sounds good to me. So he issues a decree and it's said that all the Jews in the kingdom would be killed at a certain day a few months later. Oh my goodness, Mordecai and all the Jews hear about this decree and they went into deep mourning. Mordecai sends a message to Esther telling her, this is what's happened. You've got to do something. Esther sends a message back. I can't do anything. All the king's officials and the people of the royal province know that for anyone to approach the king In the inner court, without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends his royal scepter and spares their lives. It's too scary. It won't work. I'll die. 
Mordecai replies, chapter four, verse 12, very famous words. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your own family will perish. And who knows? Maybe you have come into your royal position for such a time as this. So Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So the three days of fasting and prayer went by and then Esther goes into the king, risking her life. And it just so happened that the king was in a good mood and he received her and he asks what she needs. And Esther invites the king and Haman to her own apartment that night for dinner. So as they sit down for dinner, the king says, now, what is it you want, my dear queen? Ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And she says, well, all I want, dear king, is for you and your, and your servant Haman to come to my house tomorrow night for yet another feast that I will prepare. So they left. And Haman, oh my goodness, he's just feeling so good about himself, right? He is just feeling so super special, important. Not only did I get invited to the queen's house once, but twice for a feast in my honor. And as he's strutting down the street, he then sees Mordecai again, not bowing down to worship him as he passes. And this puts him into such a rage that he decides at that very moment that he would have a 75-foot gallows built and hang that guy Mordecai on it tomorrow. Well, it just so happens that that night, the king couldn't sleep. And so he had one of his servants get out a book to read to him, right? Kids, isn't that what you like to do when you can't fall asleep? Have your mom and dad read to you? So little King Xerxes has his little friends read to him. And it just so happened that they pulled out, of all the books, they pulled out the book of memorable deeds. And they just so happened that they turned to the page that records the time that Mordecai at the king's gate overheard and stopped the assassination plot to kill the king. And the king says, was anything ever done to honor this man who saved my life? And they said, no. And it just so happened that at that moment, Haman is walking into the king's court to ask him for permission to hang and kill Mordecai. And so at that moment, the king says to Haman, he says, what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? And Haman thinks, well, who else would the king want to honor except for me? And so he thinks of the best thing he can, right? He says, well, you should have royal robes be brought and the king's horse and put a royal crown on his head and let one of the king's most noble royal officials lead him on the horse throughout the whole city proclaiming, this is the man the king desires to honor. And the king said, that is such a great idea. I want you to do all that stuff, get the horse, get the robes, get the crown and go out and find that guy Mordecai that's sitting by the gate and do that for him. Do not leave a single thing out. And so he puts him on the horse and he puts the crown and he puts the robes and Haman leads him through the street saying, this is the man the king desires to honor. It's the most humiliating moment of his life. He goes home to his wife and he's crying to his friends, but he can't cry for very long because suddenly it's time for him to go to the second banquet with Queen Esther. So he and the king go in and there's Queen Esther. She prepared another feast for Haman and the king and they sit down and the king says, now Queen Esther, I can see you're troubled. Please tell me. What can I do for you today? Even half the kingdom I'll give to you. And Esther says, all I want, dear king, is for you to save my life and for you to save the life of my people. 
because they're a plot against me and all my people that in just a short time we would all be committed to destruction. We need to be saved. And the king can't believe it. He says, who did this? Who could possibly could have or, or put together this plot to assassinate and kill my queen and her people? And she just turns to look at Haman. And she says, this man right here. And the king is enraged and he runs out of the, the dining hall because he's so furious. And Haman knows that he's in serious trouble. And so he goes up to Queen Esther and he begins falling on top of her as she reclines on the couch, begging her for his life. And just, it happens at that moment that the king walks back in and sees Haman falling on top of his wife. And he says, will this man even molest the queen in my presence, in my own house? This man must die. And one of the servants says, well, it just so happens there's a 75 foot gallows standing right out there in the street. King says, perfect hang him. And so that very night, they hanged Haman on the gallows, the very one that he had constructed to kill Mordecai. And all God's people were saved. The end. Yeah, it's it's a pretty great story, right? Yeah, it's an awesome, it's actually one of my, it's it's one of the best stories in the Bible. And it's not just a story. What I want you all to see is it's not just a story. It's a really beautiful theological lesson Did you guys notice that the whole time I told that story, I never once mentioned God? And the reason is, I did that on purpose, is because Esther is the only book in the Bible that never once mentions God. Was this an accident? You know, did the author write the story and then send it to the publisher and say, oh, shoot, I forgot God? You know, no, no, It it was all intentional. It was intended by the author He does not mention God in order to highlight all the more that God is the most powerful character in this story, orchestrating everything, arranging every detail, managing every moment. He is in control of this story, using the circumstances to bring about God's good purposes. And in many ways, this this story is an invitation for you to notice and look for God's quiet activity amidst all of the seemingly random circumstances of this story. The theological word for this, just to teach you a little theology today, is the providence of God, the providence of God. Providence is the great truth that in God's infinite love, he provides for his people at all times and all places, directing all things towards his good appointed purposes. And we have seen this um, throughout this whole summer as we've been looking at the big story. You know, God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he says, I'm going to bless you and make you into a people that will bless the nations, and out of you will come the seed, the chosen one, the Messiah. And yet throughout the story, God's people find themselves in trouble again and again at the brink of annihilation. And so God in his providence steps in, intervenes, acts to save. And sometimes God delivers them like he does in Exodus. Do you remember the book of Exodus, kids? How does God step in to save them then? You know, in big dramatic ways with plagues and smoke and fire and the dividing of the Red Sea. He acts in miraculous ways to save God's people from destruction. Well, in this story, in Esther, God's people are also under threat of certain destruction. They're in serious trouble. And yet in this story, there's no miracles, no parting of rivers, no smoke, no plagues. 
And God is not even mentioned. And yet by the end of the story, God just as effectively saves his people from destruction. He delivers them. But instead of using miracles and supernatural events, he uses seemingly random, ordinary circumstances of everyday life to ultimately save them. There's all these coincidences. Did you hear how many times I said, it just so happened, right? It just so happened that Esther was the age that she needed to be to be recruited as the queen. Just so happened she was chosen. Just so happened Mordecai overheard the plot to kill the king. Just so happened that night the king was not able to sleep. Just so happened they turned to the right book, to the right page in the book for him to remember the story. Just so happened that the gallows were built just at the moment when they were needed. Just so happened that the Esther was the queen at this pivotal moment of potential genocide and was able to use her influence to prevent it, right? Every single one of these details you could look at on their own and see it as independent or random, and yet God conspires to bring them all together in order to bring about his great redemptive purposes for his people. Do you see that? That's, that's providence. And it's so encouraging, I think. There's even people throughout church history who have said that Esther should not be included in the Bible because it does not mention God. But I, for one, am so thankful that's in the Bible because honestly, most of the time, my life feels less like the book of Exodus and more like the book of Esther. And what I mean by that is I don't normally, I don't know about you, but I don't normally see crazy, miraculous things happening around me all the time, things that I can look at and obviously say, wow, God is really at work. It's easy to look at a plague of frogs falling from the sky and say, wow, God's really up to something. You know, it's a lot harder to look at a drunken king or a misogynistic beauty pageant or a late night bout of insomnia and say, wow, God's really working. And yet he is. He's always at work, right? He's, in, he's constantly moving and acting and guiding and directing and overseeing and providing, even in the most ordinary parts of your life. And just because you can't see how he's working doesn't mean he isn't. You can hardly ever see it. God's ways are so mysterious and so beyond our understanding that very seldom do we even get a fraction of a millionth of a view of what God is actually up to. Let me just give an example of this in my own life. I went to high school. I was, I was living in Tennessee. I had never even been to Virginia. But an older guy that I really admire named Scotty went to UVA because his parents went to UVA. And so when I visited him, I liked UVA, so I wanted to go to UVA. So it just so happened that as I started there as a freshman, there was this other guy starting there at the same time named Danny Avula. And though he is two years younger than I, his parents noticed that he was wicked smart when he was a toddler. And so they put him in kindergarten when he was four. Well, it just so happened we started as first years at the same time and we happened to live in adjacent dorms. We started going to the same fellowship group and we became good friends. And it just so happened that I met a woman named Sarah and married her and Danny met a woman named Mary Kay and married her. And it just so happened that Danny didn't get into the med school he wanted to go to, so he went to VCU instead. And it just so happened that Mary Kay was from Richmond, and she happened to grow up at Third Presbyterian Church. So they joined and became members here. And it just so happened that I was finishing grad school at about the same time that Danny was finishing med school, and he called me up and said, it just so happens that the church we go to has an open associate pastor position, and it just so happens that I'm on the search committee. <laughs> and, and so... That was 2005, and here I am. So what am I saying? I'm saying if Scotty Brown had not gone to UVA and if Danny's mom had not put him in kindergarten at age four, then I would not be here right now and my four children would not exist. <laughs> Pretty crazy, just so happened, right? 
And that's the way our lives work, right? We don't ever see it in the midst of it, but looking back, we see the way that God is orchestrating his good purposes for his desired ends. In his infinite love, God sustains and provides for the world, directing all things towards his appointed purposes. So even when you're not aware of it, God is at work. As much as in the ordinary, as in the extraordinary, as much as when you don't see him, as when you do, the most important character in your story is God. And he is working and he is acting and he is overseeing and providing and writing your story even when we do not see his hand. That's providence and it's beautiful. So let me just um, close with a couple of applications for you, my dear sisters and brothers. The first thing I think that we can gain from this is just a whole lot of comfort, a whole lot of comfort. I can just tell you from personal experience, and I know from talking to you, that when life is not going well, um, it is really hard to trust that God is doing, that God is good, and it's really hard to trust that God is doing anything at all sometimes. A couple weeks ago, I was clearing out my closet, and I found a pair of jeans that I had completely forgotten about. I said, oh, I love that pair of jeans. And sometimes I sort of feel like that way about God. He's got all these people to manage, all these things to do. Maybe he looks down at Brooke one day, he says, oh, I forgot about her. Is that the way that God is? Does he just like forget? Esther shows us God never forgets, that his silence is not God's absence, that he is always at work. Even when life is really hard, even when God appears to be doing nothing, he is at work to deliver save to bring about his good purposes. And this is true not just when it comes to the bad things that happen to us. It's also true in the bad things that we happen to do to ourselves. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor um, I've heard people say, I have messed up my life. Um, and, I, and I think I may have messed up God's plan for my life. I've made a terrible, irreversible mistake. And you know, now that I'm like solidly in middle age, like I feel this way too a lot of times. Like just looking back and, and I, you know, I wish I wouldn't have done things that way. I wish I wouldn't have parented that way. I wish I wouldn't have made those choices. You know, life is full of so many regrets and ways that we wish that our lives had gone differently. And what is so beautiful, that even though it's easy to feel like you have messed up your life so much that it is beyond God's ability to repair it, that this story shows us that it's just not true. The characters in this book are not morally upstanding people. There is so much moral ambiguity. There's a lot of drinking and sex and murder. God's people are living in outright violation of God's commands. And yet, despite all of this, despite that they're in exile, despite that they're there because of rebellion, despite the many cases of moral compromise and spiritual failure, God never stops keeping his promise to them. He never stops working. He never, even the mistakes that they make, God uses to bring about his purposes. And this is what Paul means when he says in Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things means all things. It means the bad things. It means the hard things. It means the mistakes. It means the, the regrets. It means the mess ups. It means the shame. In all things, God works for the good to those who've been called according to his purpose. No matter what happens, no matter how you screw up, y'all, you cannot write yourself out of God's script. He loves you too much. He's just too good, too loving, too powerful. One of my dear friends, um, Don Coleman, 
once said to me, you know, when everything is going poorly in your life and when you look back on your life and it's not the way that you wished it would go, it's very easy for us as humans to ask, what went wrong? What's going wrong? But Don challenged me. He said, the question of faith asks, what's God up to? What's God doing? That's a question that trusts in God's kindness, that trusts in his sovereignty. It's an invitation to notice God's quiet, unseen activity and to believe that your life with God is never out of control. Like the old hymn says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Take comfort. And the other thing I'd say is take courage. Take courage. I think sometimes people think that if you believe in a big doctrine of providence and the sovereignty of God, a God that controls everything, that ultimately makes humans complacent. Like we don't need to do anything. But it's actually the opposite, that trusting in God's providence in this way makes you courageous. Look at Mordecai, look at Esther, look at their courage. Look, if you think that everything in your life depends on you, you'll never actually able, be able to take a risk. You'll never be courageous. You know, you'll, you'll always, you'll not be able to take risks. You, you, you'll think that I just have to do, make sure everything happens in the right way or it's just not worth doing. But if you think everything depends on God, you'll be courageous. Why? Because you know that God has your back and everything always turns out for his good purposes, that God is so sovereign and good that he even uses your mess-ups and mistakes. I really like watching thrilling, scary movies after I've read the book uh, because when you know how the ending turns out, it makes the stuff in the middle a lot less scary, right? And some people criticize the book of Esther because it has such a happy, seemingly unrealistic ending. But it is just simply pointing to the great ending, the ending to which all things point. The Bible ends with a happy ending, which is the end of history. And at the end of time, we know that God wins. He defeats and evil and everything sad becomes untrue. Our story in quite a literal way is moving towards an ending just as happy as Esther's. Death is not the end. Tragedy is not the end. Suffering is not the end. Mental illness is not the end. In and through Jesus Christ, resurrection is always the end for every person that belongs to God. And that means courage. So what might God be calling you to? To be courageous. God has orchestrated everything in your life, your family, your passions, your interests, your past, your genetics, your career. God has put you right where you are right now for such a time as this. How might God be calling you to make an act of courage, especially one that blesses neighbors and that blesses the world? What might be God calling you to do? To make a courageous choice, maybe calling you to a job that is risky and pays less, but you know better fits his call on your life. You know, maybe he's calling you to break off or start a relationship, or he's calling you uh, to give more money away than you've ever been comfortable with, or, or maybe he's calling you to do something scary that you know he wants you to do, or, or, or share your faith with a friend, or have a conversation you don't want to have, or stick your neck out in a way that makes you scared, right? If you believe in God's providence and his sovereignty, you can be courageous. Why? Because God wins. The ending is always happy. You can be sure of it. And if you perish, like Esther said, you perish. To live is Christ, to die is gain. In the end is resurrection. 
I love what Helmut Thielicke, the German pastor, once said in a sermon. He said, Pascal once said that it is glorious to ride on a ship in stormy weather when you know that the ship cannot go down. This is the tumultuous joy of the Christian life. It's laughter, it's humor, it's overcoming power. The knowledge that in Christ, now our life is like a ship that can never go down. That brings courage. So let me close. What do we learn from the book of Esther? We learn that God keeps his promises to deliver his people no matter what. The world can be a really dark and scary place. And life can be really painful and overwhelming. But here's the good news, that God can take anything, even the worst things, even the hardest things, and use them to bring about his good and redemptive purposes. In the story of Esther, God takes an instrument of death built to destroy God's people and uses it instead to destroy the enemy of God's people. And in the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel, God takes an instrument of death, the cross of Christ that was built to execute the Son of God, and he uses that horrible instrument of gruesome death to kill the enemy of God's people, death, hell, and Satan himself. What a wondrous reversal. Friends, if you have that story at the center of your being, if you have the gospel story, the story of that great reversal, of the story of God's providential love, if you have that story at the center of your life, you can always hope. You can always persevere. You can always have comfort. You can always take courage because God truly holds us forever in his love. Mm, thanks be to God for that. Just want to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Maybe think of something in your life where you're having trouble trusting that God is at work. Maybe it's something with your kids, something with a parent, something with a colleague, something at work, something with your money. You're having a really hard time believing that God is at work, God is present in the ordinary stuff of your life. Maybe just hold it open to him and invite him to instill in you faith and trust to take comfort, to have courage, to have hope, to know that God is providentially guiding your life and your story, that you are never out of control, and that you are safe in his love. Speak to him now about that. Thank you, Father, for the book of Esther. Um, thank you for a story in which your footprints are unseen and yet are ever-present. And our, lives, our life really feels like that sometimes. And I pray this week that we would have comfort and courage, knowing that we are held up by a God of providential love who has already redeemed the world in and through Jesus Christ and who is bringing us to the culmination of victory that is coming. Make us into hopeful, courageous people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.